Graceline is packing its bags for the great outdoors. The Pro Peloton may get another crack at disc brakes. And a belated Mother's Day bike story. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels and freewheeling it this week because once in a while you just got to coast. The podcast is a production and hosted by RedKitePrayer.com. Publisher Patrick Brady is among us. Howdy. Hello. I'm Michael Hutton, RKP contributor, Paceline host, son of Mary Hutton. Happy Mother's Day. We are recording the show a day after Mother's Day. So, uh, Mom, fresh on the mind, and we will pay tribute to Mom a little later on the pace line. Patrick, we are without our third wheel fatty, who is off uh, taking care of real business. Yeah. I hear he has a, yeah, I hear he has an actual profession, something beyond fatcyclist.com, the fatty cast and the pace line. What is his problem? How could he do this? <laughs> Disloyal. A real job. <laughs> Man, we miss fatty, though. But he'll be back. Don't worry, folks. Um Let's get right to it today, uh, Patrick. A topic uh, we've talked a lot about uh, on the pace line. At least, I think three. This has been on three of our shows. Probably, I think our debut show as well. And that is a road disc brakes and their use in the pro peloton. The UCI has responded to reports that it intends to reinstate disc brakes in the professional peloton in June uh, by saying that it's continuing to evaluate the situation. There was an initial report by Cycling Tips uh, that the sports governing body would restart the trial, the disc brake trial, with modifications to the brakes that included rounded rotors to prevent serious injuries. The edges, the sharp edge of the rotor would be rounded. The report report that is was based on notes that the uh, publication Cycling Tips obtained uh, on the UCI's commissions, uh, they have a, an equipment commission. And they held a, a special meeting on this. Well, notes somehow got out, and uh, cycling tips got a hold of them. And in those notes, they determined that it looked like disc brakes would be reinstated by June. Now, this all started with an injury to Francisco Ventoso at the uh, Perry Roubaix, and he claimed that he was injured by a rotor when he crashed into the back of another bicycle. Um, some of the most interesting findings though, that came out of this report on cycling tips was some initial findings by a medical, a forensic medical doctor. He concluded that Ventosa's injury was likely caused by a chain ring and not a disc break. Uh, cycling tips did not obtain a copy of that forensic report, but they're, you know, at the base of this or at the heart of this reporting and at this I don't know if it's a rumor or an actual verified report, though, that that disc brakes will be returned to the Pro Peloton in uh, June. Uh, Patrick, you wrote about this a few weeks ago. Uh, Your Mm -hmm. post accurately titled The Debacle Outlined a a Rush to Judgment uh, Against uh, Disc Brakes. What do you, first of all, we know James Huang, who who did the reporting here for Cycling Tips, good reporter. I, I wouldn't doubt what he's got here is probably accurate. And what do you think of this fix? Rounded rotors does that does that help this problem? Oh man, I just I you know I want to I don't know I I, I guess I want to cry. This is just it it continues to to not be. I don't even have words for it. It continues to just be completely stupid. First off, uh, the 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 forensic 
investigation of Ventosa's injury, I'm not sure that I'm willing to believe it was a chain ring. You know, I mean, you can, you can find uh, a doctor, you know, you can produce science to come up with almost any answer you want. Um, that's not the fault of science, but I, I mean, it's one doctor's report paid for by a group with a vested interest in a particular outcome. I still think it's more likely it came from a bladed spoke. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it was a, a sort of hack investigation. Um, it's not uh, a you know a result or, or an analysis that we have much reason to to put our belief in, put our faith in. And then on top of that, there's the fact that this is so soon after the entire Peloton was in revolt from this thing that I doubt that the UCI has spent any time to get rider buy-in. So I don't think we're looking at a situation where the riders are going to be that much more receptive to disc brakes now than they were a few weeks ago. Um, I do think that uh, rounding off the edges of the rotors uh, will make a big difference in terms of ultimate safety. Uh, that mm-hmm. is actually preventing uh, future injuries. But, you know, we're, what we're talking about are a lot of attitudes that weren't really founded on science in the first place. So I'm not real hopeful that this is going to go much better. I would love to be proven wrong, but I'm not holding my breath for this. You mean much better in that getting the riders and whatever teams are against this breaks on board. That's what you yeah. mean by better? Yeah. 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 I mean, the, 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 the goal here, uh, in a, in a bigger picture sense is to move the entire pro peloton from caliper rim brakes to disc brakes. That's, that's the purpose here. That's the larger purpose. That's what we're trying to do. Um, and for those who've actually ridden road bikes with disc brakes, it, you don't have to argue the point. You know, there's not much discussion. For anyone who hasn't ridden disc brakes, it, it's this massive philosophical, you know, inquiry into, you know, what is the nature of good braking? It's like, oh my God, just go try the stuff. It's mm-hmm. not that difficult to understand. And, mm-hmm. you know, without the rider buy-in, you know, this is, this is just never going to move. Mm-hmm. Uh, another possible fix they've talked about here uh, is using uh, putting some type of cover, I guess, over the rotor, kind of like you see in motocross. Um, it, you know, bicycling and road cycling is a it's got a nice clean look uh, for looks reasons and probably for weight reasons. This may become an issue, but uh, some type of fender, a, a rotor fender. Uh, I, I don't know. I think the rounded edges seem to make a little more sense. Heck. What is wrong, first of all, let's get back to fundamentals here about this argument. Why doesn't the UCI just say, look, everyone's on, on disc brakes. We're, we're, we're making the move now. Why is it this half, this half step? I, I couldn't begin to, to tell you why. I mean that the riders have managed to uh, accrue this kind of power in this situation, and yet nowhere else in their careers where it would be far more useful completely baffles me. You know, right. and and as to the the possible cover on on the front wheel, you know, on the over the discs on the front wheel, that's just completely idiotic because it gives the front wheel something else for the wind to catch and make the bike right. even harder to handle. In the nasty crosswinds of some of the Belgian and French races, uh, really, you want that going on? I mean, they outlawed 
you know, the little bar ends, the spinaches and whatnot back in the 1990s, because every time there was the least little bit of wind and those guys were on those bars, they went down. So Mm. I don't see that being uh, even remotely realistic, but that the, that the riders have had the power uh, to put the kibosh to this is really startling. I mean, the manufacturers, SRAM, Campagnolo, and Shimano, as sponsors of these teams, they're paying big money uh, to, to give these teams their equipment. Um, and no, they don't sponsor every single team, but the majority of the teams at the very top level, they are sponsoring. And so they're paying them in addition to giving them equipment. And by right, they have the power to determine what these riders are on. So, you know, failing some sort of rule from the UCI saying you can't be on discs, the sponsors ought to have the power to say, here's what you're riding now. Right. You know, all sorts of interests are, are, of course, waiting for the UCI to sort this thing out. You mentioned the component makers. you got bike companies, too, uh, bikes uh, they're trying to develop for production for years down the road. Wheel makers, which we failed to mention to date so far. I mean, wheel makers, they're trying to figure out which way the tide is going to flow and how, you know, perception of disc brakes is going to go. They have to plan wheels and how many, you know, disc models are they going to do and rim brake model. Rim brake model is going to continue to be relevant. They're trying to figure all this out. Race and ride organize, uh, organizers also waiting for some type of decision. We've got some grand fondos that actually could be affected by the UCI's rule on disc brakes. Yep. Uh, not waiting is UCI, USA Cycling. They are conducting their own investigation by looking into a long list of injuries. Now, here's what was reported in Bicycling Magazine recently. They spoke with a lot of racers and component companies, event organizers, and beyond none except one report could they find any indication that disc brakes had caused an injury. Jeremy Powers said he did recall an injury that happened to a fellow racer, Ryan Trebon. He feels like... Ryan was hurt by a disc brake in one race, in one cyclocross race. But that's all that, that anybody's been able to come up with so far here stateside. USAC is continuing to look at crash data to determine if it needs a rule change. Right now, though, almost all races refereed by USAC allow disc brakes. And in terms of a disc brake ban, USAC says it will need compelling evidence of a safety issue to do anything. The man leading that investigation for USA Cycling says there's still tons of information to go over, but he cannot think of a single injury attributed to disc brakes. So that's where it stands here in the U.S. Uh, Obviously, Europe is still and the pro peloton still very much in limbo over um, what's going to happen with... Uh, disc brakes. Maybe if they reinstate them in June, we might see them in the tour. Yeah. Kind of doubt it, but um, that's where it stands right now. Disc brakes uh, could be back in the summer in the Pro Peloton. Uh, Patrick, the uh, first Grand Tour is underway, the Giro d'Italia, and it wouldn't be a Grand Tour without a doping story. <laughs> Danilo De Luca, the 2007 Giro winner, has a book out. And in it, he admits to doping beginning in 2001. But DeLuca is refusing to relinquish his Giro victory. In 2007, DeLuca was riding for Ligigas. Uh, He won Liège that year and the Giro. He was frequently tested while wearing the pink jersey. 
He, of course, went on to win the Giro. Uh, He was later accused, though, of doping by the Italian anti-doping investigators when one doping test discovered his urine sample was strangely very clean, kind of the opposite we'd expect. It became known as the case of the angel's pee. (laughs) However, he got off and his name remains in the Giro honor roll. DeLuca said, I believe I deserve to win all the races I did, including the 2007 Giro, and I don't intend to give that title up. The reason is simple, according to DeLuca. I won them. I doped during my career, but not always. I won races when I was clean, too. So DeLuca remaining defiant. The guy wants to sell books, so what? He puts out some dirt, but he won't come totally clean, will he? Well, I mean, I've got no reason to believe that there's anything false in the book. Uh, if he wants to claim a race was clean, you know, was one clean, fine, so be it. it. It doesn't, that doesn't lessen the sins against cycling that he committed by doping. You know, it doesn't make him a better cyclist that he sometimes won clean. That's just an asinine argument. Um, as to, you know, him not relinquishing the jersey, you know, if he can live with himself, you know, looking at that pink jersey, knowing how he won it, whatever. You know, this mm-hmm. this whole business of trying to strike wins after the fact is really sort of silly. I mean, I had a conversation with Lance Armstrong a couple of years ago, and the thing that I had to point out to him was, you know, because he's upset about his wins being stricken and no one else is being stricken. Um, and it just, it's it doesn't matter. It's completely irrelevant because when you go back and you look at the video from that time, when you look at the photographs, when you read the race coverage from those years, Lance is still there. You know, you can't suddenly erase him from what took place. So he's still the winner of those races, just as DeLuca is still the winner of that particular Giro. Um, there's There's no sanitizing our past on this. We need to live with it learn from it, and move forward. Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard to move forward when guys write books. I mean, and my problem is DeLuca's written a book, and he's, he's spilled the beans, but he's not willing to go all the way. Yeah, he, want, he goes all the way in the book to, to make money, but I think in the end he wants, he wants it all. He's not yeah. willing to, to play both sides on this. I'm, you know, I'm okay with his book. I, I really am. Um, if at some point... Uh, the UCI wants to sit down and have a conversation with him and learn more about what it was he did and who he worked with, then he had better be prepared to cooperate with that investigation. That's the one issue I have. You know, now that you've started this, you had better be prepared to follow it through to its logical conclusion, which is talking to the UCI and exposing everything you know. The um, other doping, mechanical doping, or as we like to call it on the pace line, cheating, is also part of the Giro story this year. The UCI tested nearly 600 bikes before the opening prologue of the Giro, every bike at the race, including each rider's spare bicycles. Although testing each bike won't be an everyday occurrence at the Giro this year, there will be multiple checks at each of the Grand Tours and other major races. Testing at the Giro comes in the wake of the announcement earlier this week that the UCI plans to test... 10,000 bikes for mechanical doping at pro races this season. Patrick, uh, to me, the, the C in UCI is for catch-up because <laughs> this organization is frequently, it seems like, one step behind on this stuff. And here they are. 
just trying to play catch with the drug testing and with the bike doping and all of it. It just seems like they, they, they're not moving fast enough to stay out in front of things at times. Well... Uh, you know, I think they, for all for all that they haven't managed, for all that they haven't executed well, I really think that they're on the front end of of this particular variety of cheating. You know, it's not rampant in a way that you know EPO was in the late 1990s, um, and so as a result, I mean, I think they deserve a lot more credit for their efforts in trying to track down motors uh, in bikes and. You know, if if this were a repeat of you know the late 1990s when absolutely everyone on the pel- in the peloton was on EPO, they'd be finding motors in you know nearly every bike, really. And mm-hmm. you know we've got one recorded instance so far of a rider actually being caught you know with a bike, and it wasn't even the bike that was out on the course. Um, I know McKaylee Ferrari has said, oh, this has been done since 2005. You know, screw that guy. Uh, he's he's really not proven to be any real sort of help in terms of moving toward a cleaner cycling. And, you know, he can spout off whatever he wants. That doesn't make it true. I think the, the UCI really is doing a, a pretty terrific job in preventing uh, the so-called mechanical doping from becoming absolutely endemic in the peloton. Well, my head is spinning, so I need a break from all this. Oh, fair enough. Serious stuff. Okay. Yeah, I hate it. This, this is yeah. This stuff is this is not cycling. This is this is headache material. So, Patrick, we need a vacation. Uh, The pace line (laughs) is packing its bags and attaching them to our bikes. Let's go bike packing, everybody. That's up next on the pace line. Line, the podcast on two wheels. Michael Houghton here, Patrick Brady. Fatty, uh, not with us. He's uh, he's pace line vacationing or taking a vacation from the pace line, but he's actually working. And a vacation is exactly what we all need at times, uh, a nice one. And it's always nice, too, if you can involve the bicycle in a small or even large way in that vacation, um, which gets us to our, our main topic this week, our feature topic here on the pace line, and that is... Uh, bike packing, which I've been, I've never done, but I'm very interested in. Uh, I just think it's cool to go out there and kind of self-support yourself on a multi-day ride and and see how well you do in the elements and can you get everything right. I mean, it's kind of like racing. And racing, you try to, you know, you try to plan and make sure you get your nutrition right and you have your race plan and you have your teammates in order or what have you. And bike packing and and trekking and touring seem like kind of the same thing, just minus the speed. You're trying to just see if you can plan it out right and make your stops and do everything correctly. Patrick, you wrote two recent RKP, piece, uh, RKP pieces on a, a bikepacking trip and on the on the emergence of bikepacking. One was called uh, Ranger Camp, and the other titled Same Dog Familiar Tricks. Folks should really check those out. Good reads on redkiteprayer.com. My favorite graph 
is in the post about the trip from Ranger Camp. And it's the last few lines where you say, most of my experiences camping came as a result of the Boy Scouts of America. Through them, I learned a great many skills and benefited from a number of encounters that helped me grow. But we sometimes were fun deficient. We never combined camping with cycling. I long suspected that was a miss, but I never guessed how much. Now, I won't ask you if you made it to Eagle Scouts, uh, Patrick, but, oh, but what I, I will ask, uh, I, well, <laughs> we'll reserve that, but what I will ask is what is the difference between touring and bikepacking? Well, the, the big thing is that bikepacking is meant to be an off-road excursion, you know, uh, single track going into the backcountry in a way that you simply would not be able to do with a traditional touring bike. Uh, Bikepacking also differs from traditional touring in terms of the way you carry the load so that you can make it through that single track. A traditional touring bike, even with bigger tires, would have problems in a lot of spots due to the big panniers, uh, both front and rear. More, More in the rear, because those tend to tend to be the bigger bags. But uh, in bikepacking, very often you'll have uh, two, uh, two packs, small ones, uh, strapped to the fork. There will be a big handlebar bag and then a seat bag. And what you're trying to do in, in bikepacking is keep as much of the weight as possible along the center line of the frame itself. So in plane with the frame. There's also frequently a, uh, a frame bag uh, so that you can carry stuff, you know, within the main triangle of the bike. And that makes the bike, uh, even though it's heavier, uh, it makes it easier to manage that weight as you're moving through turns. So the trip that we did in broad strokes, uh, met in San Jose, um, left initially on a few roads, then a bike path, a couple more roads, and then onto fire roads and single track, and took us through the Santa Cruz Mountains. Ultimately, we wound up in Santa Cruz. So we th- we rode through the Santa Cruz Mountains to Santa Cruz from San Jose. And uh, most of the trip, most of our mileage was a mix of single track and fire road. And, you know, this is not stuff that you would necessarily want to do on a traditional touring bike, even if you were running, say, 35s or 40s. Um, you know, we were on mountain bikes and, you know, we didn't have to carry huge loads, but, you know, you had a couple days worth of clothing, you had a sleeping pad, you had a sleeping bag, you had a tent, uh, you had some utensils so that you could eat, and then you had uh, some, you know, your hydration pack and some spare food, uh, snacks, that sort of thing. So it's a, you know, it's definitely a different approach to traditional touring something that I certainly did lots of back in the 1990s. So on an experience level, uh, equipment aside, we understand there's differences in equipment. You see tours, bike touring, generally people going down the highway with bags attached, panniers attached with bags attached to the side. You look like heavier loads, bikes that, you know, probably a little, a lot more gearing involved. But on an experience level, can you... Can you describe the difference? I think really the appeal is is about getting out in a way, in a way that's, you know, harder to do on a touring bike. 
you know, really getting into the backcountry. Um, I'm not aware of too many people who are doing, you know, really long distance tours via bikepacking. That's out there. Uh, some of the rangers at, at the ranger camp had have plans to do that sort of thing. But I think in general, you know, bikepacking is about shorter trips, but getting out in a way to areas that, you know, would be hard to do in a single day ride on a mountain bike. And so, you know, this is a weekend trip, you know, a three, four day sort of thing. Um, and you're, you know, you're going places that are, are more remote, more removed from, you know, civilized society, um, you know, in this way. And so you're, it's a chance to explore, you know, single track and, and wilderness areas uh, that would not, you know, it's just, it's a way to get away. Right. So is there an opportunity when you're bikepacking to ride to where you're going to camp and then ride some more than, in other words, offload that that gear and then go out and explore on the bike? Is there enough energy left to do that and to, and to do some actual mountain biking? Well, I guess it's all in how you plan your trip out. So for us, you know, we rode into the mountains, uh, took a day to do just some, you know, traditional mountain biking on single track, um, unlock that front fork instead of keep, instead of keeping it locked out. Um, and then the, you know, the third day we rode out of the mountains and into Santa Cruz, um, you know, but, for some folks, the you know the nature of the trip they may want to take might be moving camp every single day. But I think there's a, a big appeal to riding someplace, setting up camp, and then riding for a day or two with you know without that load on your bike, having already set up your your tent and sleeping bag and whatnot, and then you know after a night or two, then striking camp and heading back uh, into civilization. Like Patrick said. Uh, bags and the right bags are a big part of this. Patrick and I recently spoke with a, a leading bikepacking equipment manufacturer. Paul Giratano is customer service and sales manager rep for Ortlieb USA. Here's how, what he had to say about the emergence of, of bikepacking. Paul, it seems like um, bikepacking is experiencing a resurgence or an emergence in the U.S. I mean, uh, in Europe, this has been going on for a long time, but it looks like now we're seeing a bikepacking show up, not only on the roads, but on the covers of magazines. Is that what you're sensing, too? We are. Bikepacking's been around for a long time, but it hasn't been as refined as it is now. So when you have brands that have been out there that have been kind of trendsetters and innovators like Revelate and Apidura and some of the other custom brands, even including Blackburn, they've done a really good job of bringing product that's specifically designed for that category because you could take dry bags and attach them to your your bike in any number of different fashions including panniers which people have been doing for years but now we've got product that's specifically designed for that to be lightweight and to be technically functional so what ortlieb has done is we've decided to be a part of that category now but not trying to reinvent it but do it really really well since we have the technology and we've had it for 30 something years in terms of our RF welding and the waterproof fabrics that we use. So in the U.S., we've seen this really take off in the past few years. And in, believe it or not, in Germany, they weren't super hot on the idea of bringing in bikepacking because they don't see it a bunch over there. It's kind of like what 29er bikes were doing 10 years ago. Was, you know, there was a little bit of apprehension on their part, but now we know it's gone like wildfire. Bikepacking is essentially doing the same thing in the United States. And we'll see that happening more and more in places like Germany, even though we know it's been popular in Europe. And when we went to Eurobike, you could see it everywhere. 
but just kind of getting over that hurdle has been, you know, something that's been a, a bit of a good challenge for us. And we, in the end, we've produced an amazing product because of it. So on the Ortlieb side, it's definitely growing. And we expect to see that trend grow more and more in the United States. The riders that are coming into this aren't necessarily going to be mountain bike bike packers. It's just somebody who wants a lightweight, rackless bag. And you can see that happen in a variety of different combinations with road products, panniers that we use, people who do gravel grinding, or just, you know, bike camping in general. And, you know, you see a, a large, you know, a large swath of people who use a combination of that product. And it's great because it's such a versatile product that you see in bike packing in general. And that's what Ortlieb's really trying to be a part of. In, in terms of technical challenge, I mean, one of the things about bike packing is, you're usually on a mountain bike. You're frequently on single track. So, you know, the traditional approach of panniers doesn't really uh, apply. You know, they can be problematic. I mean, in terms of technical challenges for you guys, what have you encountered that you've really needed to overcome? The challenges are how do you make the product secure? We haven't been a mountain bike brand in the past, so that technology or that tribal knowledge of creating mountain bike products hasn't existed in Orly. So people like me and Ian and so on have been brought in and product managers in the United States who have now joined Ortlieb to help kind of bring in some of that knowledge and experience and tapping into some of our, our sales folks who are experienced endurance and distance riders and people who have ridden like the divide races and so on to really help design the bags because you know as we looked at before some of the bags how do you create a seat bag that doesn't wag on the back of your bike like a dog's tail you know having something that's really secure and makes you feel comfortable that your gear is going to stay secure on the bicycle and that you're not necessarily going to lose your bag or just be irritated by the fact that things are moving around that's one of the technical challenges so we charged our engineers and designers in germany with coming up with that and they really delivered well with it because they were able to tap into the the information that we gave them and the feedback saying this is what we need to do with the product and they did a great job of market research and building that and also finding product that's going to stay waterproof weatherproof bags are huge for this because you know you can't control nature what are you going to do if you're out on a sunny day and all of a sudden the weather goes totally sideways on you well you got all your stuff in your bag you want to make sure it's secured your whether it be your sleeping bag your jacket your food any of your electronics and that's been a challenge for a lot of companies to be able to do that effectively and efficiently and, and, and definitely make it you know, affordable for people. And when you see a lot of the products that have come out on the market, to, to have that type of technology, the price goes through the roof. But luckily, Ortlieb's had that technology in-house, proprietary, for 30-plus years. It's something we were happy to bring to the market. So for someone looking at, at a distance, that, uh, maybe I'd like to get into this, what would be the two or three pieces you'd say, yeah, here's a good way to get started and get moving into the bikepacking area? Absolutely, if a seat pack. You want to have that first because it's a great place to keep your gear out of the way but still keep it really relatively centered on the bike and keep it safe. I'd have a handlebar bag so you can keep your lightweight product or you know, items in there, whether they be food items or your sleeping bag or a sleeping roll, jacket, gloves, that type of thing, and also a frame bag. You know, a frame bag is key, and that's a popular piece. It's an item we don't have yet, but definitely a frame bag is something you'd want to look at. Again, that was Paul Giratano of Ortlieb USA, and they have a, a, a nice line of products, of obviously in bikepacking and just other stuff in general. Uh, Patrick, uh, based on your recent experience, though, would you add any pieces to Paul's recommendations? Well, I think the uh, carrying a couple of dry bags on the fork is pretty helpful. You know, the the seat bag, the frame bag, and the handlebar bag sort of go without saying. 
but you can fill that up in a hurry if you're actually going to be using a tent and sleeping on the ground. So having some additional uh, space for clothing, um, I think that's really pretty important. I'm somebody who doesn't like to be in the same chamois day after day after day. So I am going to bring a pair of bibs for every single day I ride. That kind of goes without saying with me. It's just a non-negotiable. So having a, uh, having a couple of dry bags strapped to uh, the fork is the other thing uh, that I think is really important. And then your hydration bag. Uh, having a hydration pack uh, gives you a chance to carry some easily accessible food and it, you know, still gives you the ability to carry lots of water to stay hydrated because once you have a frame bag, you're not going to be having water bottles in cages. What's what would be your minimum bike requirements? I mean, you know, folks, this is there is an investment here. If you got to buy bags, I mean, people probably don't want to go out and have to buy a bicycle as well. If somebody has a fill in the blank in their garage, they could probably pull off bike packing. What would be that type of bike? Uh, Alex, I'm going to go with what's a bike for 200? Just any bike. Yeah, really. It's that simple. It, you know, whatever bike you have that will take you somewhere, you can then bike pack to that place. Now, if you don't have a mountain bike, going on a bike packing trip into single track is going to be pretty hard. So, you know, maybe the more appropriate answer to your question is, well, you need a mountain bike. But that's only if you're planning on doing, you know, actual travel back into the backcountry on single track. But otherwise, just about any bike will do. So are there like guided adventures people will take you on these trips? You know, I haven't even looked into that. I'm I'm yeah. sorry to say. Yeah, no idea. Yeah. Uh, I do know that uh, there's a local bike shop here. It used to be called Topanga Creek Bike Shop. It's now called the uh, Topanga Outpost. Uh, Chris up there has changed his whole, almost his whole business profile from being mountain biking, traditional bike shop to more bike packing focused. And he, his entire shop is now outfitted with bags and camping equipment and, and the types of maps and navigation you might need to carry out by. And, and not only that, yes, he does a, he does a Saturday group ride, you know, bike, a mountain bike ride. But during the middle of the week, he takes groups out for for bike packing trips little you know excursions like you talked about shorter stuff yep. one night maybe two nights out in the local mountains quick turnaround stuff and you know it is i think uh, we feel this this another movement we've had kind of this adventure bike movement aka gravel does this patrick feel like to you a, another nice movement in the bike industry Oh, absolutely. You know, I think one of the great things that we're seeing in cycling right now is this incredible diversification in terms of ways to pursue this sport that we love. If there's been any sort of golden lining uh, to the doping scandals of, you know, the 90s and 2000s, uh, it's that we don't need these heroes anymore. And we're able to just find our own way to enjoy a sport that we love. Uh, the Topanga Outpost is such a great place, and that's such a great example of the way in which the sport is really becoming, you know, more diverse and embracing more different approaches. It's such a cool place, and it's a great example also of, you know, the retailers that are going to survive long term are really helping to to foster and generate culture. They're not there for transactions; they're there for community. Mm-hmm. My final question for you is, uh, did you make Eagle Scout? <laughs> yeah, I did. I'm proud did. to say, yeah. 
That's awesome. Yeah. It was okay. a big deal. They, there was no bike merit badge though, huh? There was a cycling merit badge. Yeah. And I oh, got was it. there? Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's awesome. All right, then. Well, bikepacking, folks. Maybe you have something to plan your little summer vacation around. It's, you know, it's not too late. You can get out there and find some bags. Check out a company like Ortley Blackburn. If you've got a bike, as Patrick said, any bike, or more specifically, maybe a, a hardtail mountain bike, uh, boy, you might be able to pull off yourself a little bikepacking trip. Bring a bear bell, though, and some bear spray. <laughs> uh, coming up, uh, Mom, hey, we blew it last show. We really did. But the pace line is about to bridge the gap and give you... You're just due. That's next on the pace line. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Patrick Brady, Michael Houghton here. Fatty not with us, but uh, we're expecting his return sometime soon. Uh, interesting story uh, regarding bike videos. Look, just like any guy out there, I love watching bike videos online, especially the ones featuring pro mountain bikers shredding a, a training trail. They're easy to find, but usually involve an element of the rider's sponsors. Now, single track publisher Mark Alker has revealed that the magazine's website is soon to start charging for uploading and distributing the brand-produced videos of sponsored writers. On Facebook, he complained that another sponsored writer had just sent their latest very pro-expensive video episode with a request to share it to the massive audience they've spent 15 years of money building. The answer, said Alker, is no. Um, he gets kind of a rap as being a grumpy publisher, but he did say if sponsored writers want to get exposure by creating their own content with the financial backing of their sponsors, then build your own audience to distribute it or pay us like you would any advertiser so that we can be around for the next 15 years. Patrick, you've been in the publishing biz for a long time. Are these videos Content or advertising and WWPD, <laughs> what would Patrick do? Uh, I'm going to go with D, all of the above. I mean, yeah, it's content. They're fun to watch. But it's con it's advertising that masquerades as content. You know, it does have a broader purpose. It's not there just for you to get your stoke on. You know, this is, this is definitely a brand message. You know, it's about how great their frame or fork or, you know, clothing, whatever it is, whoever the sponsor is, you know, it's helping to promote their image as, you know, being, you know, making for a better experience out there and understanding the culture. So, you know, it, it is definitely, uh, you know, part of the overall marketing effort. And I fully support the decision to start charging for that stuff. It makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, but single track will find itself in a bit of a dilemma, I would think, for, in the interim. If not then, then somebody else will post those Oh, things. certainly. Bike rumor yeah, will. You know, you can... Right. The, the effort needs to be united. And can, can this group be united? Oh, well, there's never going to be any unification within the bicycle media. I mean, it, you choose any channel of media, a unified approach is never, ever going to happen, you know, but it's, you know, by, by him taking this stand, it, it does create room for others 
who have, you know, not been wild about uh, promoting this stuff to then reassess their relationship to that. Um, you know, I, I took the approach when I started RKP of, you know, making it very clear that I'm not going to reprint uh, press releases. That's just not what we do. You know, I have mm-hmm. standards for the writing on the site and if it's not something that's well written, we're not going to run it. And that doesn't mean is the video a press? Well, is the video a press release in your mind? It, it's, those videos? You know, it's a it's a first cousin. You know, it is a, a kind mm-hmm. of press release or ad. You know, it it it's blurring all of those lines in that way. Uh, frequently, when yep. a brand signs a new athlete, uh, one of the very first things that comes out is a video produced with said athlete. And so it's a way to for them to get it across that this dude is writing our stuff now. Uh, the Tour of Gila was won by Lachlan Morton. Uh, but the best story from the stage race in New Mexico came, I think, during the end of stage one, when Zach Allison's derailleur essentially exploded halfway up the final climb. His team car was several miles back at the foot of the climb. And uh, walking the remaining four kilometers would seem, uh, would actually would have meant that uh, Allison would have probably missed the time cut. Luckily, a fan came by on a bike, and Allison went for it. (laughs) It being an early 80s specialized stumpy, and he used it to crush the final 4,000-foot climb. After a few stops to adjust the seat height, Allison says he made pretty good time on the old mountain bike and even caught up to a few other racers who were starting to crack. There's a great shot of Allison throwing that stumpy across the line as if he were... In a sprint finish, Patrick. So, you know, thinking on your feet and, and grabbing a bike and going for it. The, the rules said he was well within the yeah. rules. No, it's dynamite. It's it's sort of sad that this is the best story that came out of the Tour of the Gila. You know, I mean, that's such a fine race. And it's been such an amazing proving ground for so many aspiring pros. It's incredibly hard. And unfortunately, <laughs> this story, uh, great human interest piece that it is, has completely eclipsed the race itself. But uh, it's amazing to me. You know, he's a he's a bright guy. This is a first year pro. And he said, when I first started walking, I was doing the math. And he said, if I'm walking at 4K an hour in my sock feet, then I'm an hour down. And he said, I, I won't make the time cut. And uh, he saw the old stump jumper. Um, and you know, the dude was there to, uh, cheer people on and he, you know, this wasn't just like here, take my bike. He had to convince him to trade, uh, bikes. He left his giant propel with him as collateral. Um, and then, uh, just as you would in a traditional, uh, bike change in neutral, you know, they, they traded bottles out, uh, and he was on his way. Um, and he, Get this, he also said, once I got going, I was probably only doing a mile an hour or two slower than he was before. He was killing it on that bike. Well, here's the thing. If you look at photos of the bike, you know, this wasn't a completely original stump jumper. It had slicks on it. He'd also put uh, a saddle on it that was a good deal more comfortable than the original Avocet that was on there. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, it was, that was really something. And Here's another thing, you know, first year pro, he's 26. The bike is seven years older than he is. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. They, we need a, jer- we need a new Jersey category. Don't we? <laughs> the, best, best thinker, some type of the new most Jersey unmitigated badass, get the job done. Right. Yeah. Exactly. 
Forget courageous writer. Forget most aggressive. Yeah. Best thinker. Best thinker in the peloton. Yeah. Okay. Most resourceful. Hey, uh, last show uh, we took a we took a cue from uh, a regular post on RKP, the Friday group ride, and we answered the question posed at the end of the column, which was, "How did you learn to ride?" And Patrick and I both credited our fathers with go- uh, getting us going. Well, uh, that may have been uh, one of the more short-sighted, insensitive, lack of Google calendar knowledge the pace line has ever seen. We gave Dad all the credit in the days before Mother's Day. So for the first time ever on the pace line, we present the do-over segment, or maybe it's take two. Yes, it was Dad who gave me that first launch on two wheels. Dad showed me how to work the bike. But it was Mom who gave me the freedom to ride. It was mom who greenlighted riding to school. It was mom who insisted I ride to baseball practice. I said I wanted to go fishing at the local reservoir. Mom said, have a nice ride. I got a paper route. Mom advised, you'll get it done faster on your bike. Building wooden ramps to do street BMX. Mom looked the other way. (laughs) First road rash. Mom was a medic. When I crashed my mom's three-speed into an oncoming car, mom didn't yell at me. She chewed out my school principal for sending me to class with a gash in my leg. (laughs) So while mom did not take the training wheels off, she did remove any doubt that the bike was my first step towards becoming self-sufficient and independent. Happy Mother's Day, Mom, and I promise to get the front wheel on your three-speed fixed one day. (laughs) Mom, she was an inspiration for the bike. How about you? Mom played a part in your bike riding, Patrick? Yeah, very much. Um, I mean, I did at least give her credit for taking me out to buy my first bike. So I was six years old, and she decided to go to the Peddler Bike Shop, which had recently opened in Memphis, uh, owned by a couple of hippies. And I think my mom was sort of a, uh, a closeted, wishful hippie herself. And we went in there and got my Raleigh Chopper, And some years later, when I was ready to buy my first good road bike, and I decided that I wanted to sell some stock that my grandparents had given me over the years, uh, she was the one who kind of endorsed that decision and thought it was a good idea. My dad wanted me to sell the stock to use for gas money. And she was the one who actually pointed (laughs) out to him that I, you know, if I was riding my bike around, that I would actually save him more in gas that way. And uh, so, yeah, she was somebody who certainly helped facilitate my cycling along the way, even if she didn't actually teach me how to ride. So she yep. she gets big props. And your mom's name Catherine. is? Catherine. So happy Mother's Day, Catherine and Mary. My mom's name is Mary Houghton. Um, we're a little late, but, you know, we, again, we try to bridge the gap here on Paceline when we see them. Uh, the pace line pulling into the pits now. We'd like to thank our supporters, of course, fatcyclist.com. Fatty not with us today, but we're expecting he'll be back soon. Red Kite Prayer is the home of the pace line. Patrick, what will be uh, what will we be seeing on the pages of RKP coming up? I've got a few different uh, pieces of gear review, some tires coming up. Uh, let's see, uh, some some really hot bibs from Panache out of Colorado. And uh, mm-hmm. think piece uh, about the nature of subjectivity, and it sort of relates to how uh, gear reviews are done. Oh, I'll be very interested in that one. Uh, the pace line can be found, of course, on redkiteprayer.com. And we have a new feature there. If you're listening to the show from the site, you can hit that little clamor button you're going to see on the right side of the player. That'll allow you to highlight a clip, post it to Twitter or Facebook, because sharing is 
such a cool thing. If you want to just share the whole show too, at the bottom of each post, you'll see you know, a Facebook button, a Twitter button, Pinterest, all those are down there too. So please share the show with everyone you know. We really appreciate it. Helps get the word out about the pace line. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Music. So subscribe and follow the pace line, please. Now, for Fatty and Patrick, I'm Michael Houghton. We'll talk to you next time on The Pace Line. Remember, no one's perfect. Every kid has faults. Remember, it's the thought that